Welcome to the CFI Podcast, hosted by Canadian Forest Industries Magazine, Canada's leading national logging and solid wood products magazine since 1881. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends in the logging and wood products industries with experts from across Canada. This podcast brought to you by MNP features Chris Duncan, our national leader of forestry and forest product services. MNP, wherever business takes you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the CFI podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Cools, editor of Canadian Forest Industries magazine. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Chris Duncan, national leader of forestry and forest product services at MNP. We will be taking a look back at the forest industry in 2021, going over some of the big changes that took place or were announced this year, lumber market trends, uh, challenges and opportunities for the industry in the coming year, and more. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ellen. So 2021 has definitely been a year for the books with ongoing record high lumber prices and demand despite a drop towards normal prices in the summer. What are some of the factors that drove these market trends? Lumber's high prices in the spring were, were basically driven by high consumer demand for it. So we saw a peak in, in April and May, and then it tailed off over the summer. One of those factors, which we're seeing everywhere in the economy, but it was heavily impacted uh, on lumber pricing, was, was COVID. Uh, people stayed at home, and they spent money on this do-it-yourself craze that came across North America. Um, if you look at lumber producers, they were having struggles keeping up with the, the increased demand. And if you were to look at the Home Depots and the Ronas of the world, they also turned around record profits because of the, the demand for their product. And they had a hard time keeping it on the shelf. The other thing was, was U.S. housing starts also saw solid increases in early 2021. So that also led to an increase in demand. And then on, on the other side, on the supply side of things, producers uh, really struggled to produce enough lumber and get it to the market. Lack of rail cars caused logistical nightmares uh, to try to get your, your product to market. And then uh, at, at some points during the year, order files were pushing a month and a half or, or more, uh, especially early on in the year. So um, it was really supply wasn't keeping up with the demand. And as prices rose, the supply eased, but consumers actually started sitting back and waiting for the dive, uh, especially in the late spring, as, as we saw the peak in uh, April, May, and the prices started on downward trend, uh, consumers actually started holding out on purchasing. And then that further compounded the downwards trend. And we saw this a lot with, with large purchases that a consumer would sit and wait. And, and literally, if you waited a week, the, the price could change by 10, 15% in that time span. So overall, 2021 lumber pricing, it's, a, it's one for the record books. Uh, I mean, we saw over $1,000 a board foot roller coaster from start to now. And uh, there was predictions of, of good pricing, but I don't think we ever could predict the consumer trends that we saw with purchasing and, and that do-it-yourself fad that sort of hit the consumer market. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone uh, ever expected lumber prices to hit uh, the levels that they did, but it's been a fun ride, I guess. Um, so with such high demand and prices, what were some of the main concerns for sawmills and loggers in the past year? So, so sawmills really um, trying to secure the fiber 
to making making sure that they had enough logs to uh, produce the lumber to be able to sell it because it's, it was basically it was a seller's market and if you had the volume and you could get it out on the market you're going to sell it and you're going to make a, a good return on your product but the problem was was trying to secure that fiber for many mills uh, they had trouble early on in in 2021 log supply um, was not ideal for sawmills and then we kind of saw that progress through into the summer Log supply increased a bit, but then we, uh, in Western Canada, we were impacted by uh, a long, dry summer and, uh, and wildfires. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it definitely had a restriction on, on fiber. The other thing was labor. Everyone's seeing labor trends as far as a shortage of it these days. And that's really hampering uh, producers as far as trying to make sure they have the right people to do the job that they need to do. And I mean, I think we'll see more of a trend towards capital investment to reduce the numbers of people's in sawmills as, as the trend we've seen in the past 10 to 15 years as well. And we're going to continue to see that trend because people, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, people is the number one thing that, that owners are running into these days. And then the other thing is uh, the challenges for a sawmill is, you know, this is a trend that it's going to change if you've owned your sawmill long enough, you've seen the ups and downs, you know, the roller coaster that is lumber prices. And one big concern was making sure that folks were building the reserves to save for the eventual downturn and making sure that they, they could weather the storm because that's just the nature of the industry. You, you have a high time and you know, there's a storm at the end of it. And then figuring out what's the healthy mix of capital reinvestment versus saving for the storm was was a challenge that many faced. On the logging side of things, honestly, many loggers didn't see the same upside that the the sawmills saw. The rate to harvest a cubic meter of timber stayed relatively flat. There were some increases, but not the same as what we saw in the increase in lumber prices. Profitability and getting paid fairly for the work that they do is still an ongoing issue. And then on, on their front as well, labor shortages have started to hit across Canada. The labor pool in, on the logging side of things is, is an aging pool. Uh, we're looking at an average age in the 50s somewhere and trying to figure out the plan for the next generation of loggers is something that I know anybody who owns a logging company these days in Canada, even North America. Um, I was talking to some, some loggers in, in Oregon and they have the same issue as Trying to find the, the next generation to come into logging is the struggle. It's really hard to convince a 20-something-year-old that it's a good idea to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and be out ready to work at first light and that you're going to have to drive 100 kilometers to get to your job site or go into camp and you're not going to see your family for, for two weeks. So uh, I think that's one of the things uh, the loggers need to focus more on is, is that recruitment and how do you uh, make the industry more attractive for the talent that you need. Uh, and then the, the other thing loggers faced in 2021 was the supply chain uh, issues. So trying to get the equipment that you need to do the job uh, and replace your old equipment became a struggle. We're looking at lead times of eight to nine months on, on uh, equipment from some manufacturers. Material shortages. So uh, gone are the days when you could just phone up and, and order 2,000 meters of, of uh, cable. Now it's it's a matter of you got to order it ahead of time. It's on a boat somewhere coming over. And same thing, uh, we saw that with um, oil filters for your equipment, uh, regular maintenance items. 
things that generally are sitting on a shelf somewhere or readily available within a day or two, it's now become, oh, well, that's four weeks out. That's five weeks out. So planning your logistics really became a nightmare for, for loggers and making sure that uh, you actually have everything you need to run for the next month at a time versus prior to that, it was just in time. When you needed it, you went and got it. Uh, and then on top of that, because that uh, the supply has slowed down, prices have gone up. So um, talking to clients, we've seen anything from 10 to 20% increases across the board for their supplies on the logger side, which if your rate hasn't changed a whole lot, it dips into your profitability. So that was the main concern with, with loggers in 2021. Yeah, definitely um, a lot of concerns there, I think. Supply chain issues and labor being something that's not just uh, specific to forestry, but most industries are experiencing problems with that. Um, so you mentioned the uh, wildfires in BC, uh, other parts of Canada, US West, um, among other places that also played a role in terms of uh, log supply and some sawmills took downtime as a result. So do we know yet just how big that impact of the wildfires was on the industry? I don't think we do. I think we, we know the impact of what those wildfires did as far as a uh, number of acres and hectares burned and the impact short term on fiber supply in those local areas. But I think we're going to continue to feel the wildfire impact going on every summer. And given the current warning, warming trends that we, we're seeing in North America, um, it's going to be a new challenge for industry in general. What, uh, what may actually have the largest impact overall from the wildfire situation is actually how government's going to react to the recent fires and how are they going to try to enact measures to mitigate future fires. The government policy could actually be more crippling than the fires themselves if there's mitigation measures to, to prevent the, the losses of communities such as Lytton, BC, for instance, and, and things like that. So government policy is going to be one of the driving factors there. And especially as governments subscribe to things such as CO26, where they uh, committed to uh, the reduction on deforestation. How does that tie into natural deforestation from wildfires, but on top of that production in the industry as well? So I think government policy is the unknown factor that we don't see in natural disaster situations yet, because that's going to be two to three years down the road and uh, two or three more dry seasons down the road. And, and that's going to be interesting to see what government's reactions are. You see things in the Western United States around mitigation of, of fuel management um, and under, undergrowth management, but we don't really know what that long-term impact is going to be from, from that policy. Right. Yeah, that's a good point about the government policies and uncertainty around that. Um, BC has also dealt with another uh, natural disaster issue in the past few weeks. In fact, the uh, record flooding that wiped out highways, closed down railways, and has disrupted the supply chain even more. So um, how has the flooding affected the forest industry so far? Yeah, so we've really been beat up out in uh, BC this year. We went from fires to floods within about three months. But um, the flooding's really caused a lot of temporary downtime. So the... Highways infrastructure has been absolutely hammered. At one point, you couldn't get out of the lower mainland. Every highway in every direction was closed. Infrastructure as far as forest service roads 
has been impacted as well. So when we see washouts on our highway systems, the same things happened on on a lot of the backcountry roads to get us into the the key resource areas. So um, there's millions and millions of dollars of infrastructure repairs that are going to be needed, and that's going to cause downtime, especially going into winter. Some of these areas are going to be soon, if not already, snowed in, and we won't be able to get to the repairs until the spring. So we may actually lose spring production in a lot of those areas because we're going to be focused on trying to just to get into them and repair the areas. The other thing is with all the natural disasters, the fires are consuming fiber that could otherwise been harvested and used for production. So it takes a chunk out of our fiber basket. And then ultimately, I mean, if the fire situation continues on and we have too many fires, um, we're going to have a, a fiber crunch, just so to speak, especially in the interior where these large fires are taking out uh, hundreds of thousands of hectares at a time. Uh, that, that's a lot of production. That's a lot of years of production being taken out in a single event. So fi- fire is, is probably our number one enemy as far as fiber supply goes. Um, and what it's doing is putting a lot of pressure on those interior mills that already have fiber issues given uh, the after effects of mountain pine beetle. Now there's spruce beetle and now you top fires off on it. There's a lot of communities that are reliant on forestry that their fiber baskets shrinking around them very quickly. Yeah, that's definitely going to be an issue for the next five to 10 years, at least. Um, Speaking of fiber supply, everyone listening will already know this, but the BC forest industry is facing even more uncertainty with the provincial government's announcement at the beginning of November that it intends to defer the harvest of 2.6 million hectares of old growth forest. So what are your thoughts about this deferral in terms of how it will impact the industry? So the deferrals are not good for the industry as a whole. Unfortunately, the BC government has decided to drive their bulldozer legislation through the sandbox that is our industry. It's, it's bringing a, a sledgehammer to try to pound a nail. Many in the industry feel that there's been a lack of consultation with the different groups that are going to be directly impacted by this, uh, including Indigenous communities and industry experts. BC is trying to re-image its forest industry, and there's a change happening in the industry in that Indigenous communities are becoming far more involved in in the industry. It's been identified as a priority by many Indigenous groups, and and this deferral process has really kind of given them 30 days to comment on this, and many feel that that hasn't really given everybody the amount of time that they need to do the full um, research to figure out the impacts on their business planning, on their communities, etc. Um, the vagueness and the cumbersomeness of the legislation also fails to satisfy the demands of the environmental groups that were requesting the change initially. So we've actually gotten to a point where we've got legislation now. However, it's not satisfying anybody. So we're, we're kind of at this weird point of, well, what do we do? And the scary thing is, is when we have reactions from government to uh, interest groups like we've seen here is if I'm a licensee looking to invest in a region, I'm not going to be as willing to invest or I'm not going to invest at all in a region that has uncertainty as BC does. So our previous three or four questions talked about some of the uncertainty of BC as far as natural uh, disasters and things like that. To add on top of this, we now have government. So if I'm looking to invest 
I'm, I'm not looking at BC right now, which is a scary factor in the number of mill communities and those uh, communities that rely solely on forestry as their, as their industry of employment for their communities. I think there could have been a different approach using the consultation of uh, a mix of industry and the environmental groups. And, and honestly, what BC needs is collaboration now. We don't need everybody fighting one another because if we do that, we're just going to kill an industry. And it may not actually be the environmental side that kills it. It will be the reaction to it. And then the fact that as an owner, I'm not going to invest in an uncertain market. And that could be the actual killing factor to the industry in BC. So I think for many of us, we, we are sitting back, holding our breath, hoping that government listens to some of the issues that have been brought up in the last two to three weeks since the deferral announcements have happened. And we're hoping that there's a more collaborative approach to this process. Uh, I think anybody in industry that you talk to will agree that there's something that needs to be done, but I don't think anybody will agree that this was was the approach that needed to be taken. And I think on the environmental side, everybody tends to say that a lot of their concerns actually have been uh, overlooked in this deferral process. So it hasn't really satisfied any of the groups involved. And to be fair, government's in a tight spot. So we'll see where it plays out. I don't think it's good for the industry as a whole in BC. The government needs to be committed to truly bringing all the stakeholders together from all sides and come up with a comprehensive future forestry plan for BC. Absolutely. I think everyone can agree that this um, announcement didn't seem to take into account both sides of the story at all and doesn't seem to satisfy any stakeholders' interests and their demands. So it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward. Yeah, it it will be. I mean, the, the impact was immediate. It was announced Tuesday morning, and by that afternoon, I was having conversations with folks that were looking at canceling capital investments or postponing them till there's more certainty that can be had. And that resulted instantaneously in job losses in the contractors that were going to do that capital improvement for for, uh, a few of those folks. And I've also had conversations with uh, Indigenous stakeholders that have postponed investing in the industry. Um, There was deals that were in the works that have been basically put on hold until we have more certainty. And then, I mean, we have communities like Port McNeil on northern Vancouver Island, which is, it's a key resource forestry town. And they're looking at what their future is going to be like if, if the deferrals actually take place that are, that are being suggested. What's the impact going to be on their community? And, you know, there's the trickle effect. If you don't have enough people in a community, you don't have the schools, you don't have doctors come to those communities. I mean, it can make a ghost town out of a community really quickly. So uh, a lot of concern there. And the same thing on the logging contractor side is I've had logging contractors now uh, sitting down trying to evaluate how's a future similar announcement going to impact them. Should they actually be going out and spending a million dollars on a new processor because maybe it's not going to be fully utilized? And then value added manufacturers, they're all scrambling to find new sources of fiber. A lot of uh, the high value add processing that's done in BC is based on old growth fiber input. So many are trying to figure out or redo processes that use non-old growth fiber. But if you're a guitar maker that relies on old growth spruce for your guitar bodies, um, you're going to have a real struggle trying to uh, change overnight to a different product to, to produce. So overall industry is scrambling a little bit uh, to figure out 
if this is the new norm, how do we continue the industry given the new norm? Right. It's a bit ironic um, considering that the BC government last year was all about the value-added sector and encouraging growth in that. And then they're deferring old growth harvesting, which the value-added manufacturers need for their products. So I guess uh, it's a bit questionable, but we'll see what happens. I've lived in BC long enough to know that's just the way BC is. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, of course, old growth harvesting, it's uh, been a hot topic in the past year or so with the ongoing protests in Perry Creek and other areas. And part of the issue is uh, there's there's debate about what's considered old growth and how much of BC's old growth forest is left. Uh, a Kofi Commission study that came out a few weeks ago um, says there's 30% old growth forest left, as opposed to 3%, as a different study suggests. So how do you think that those protests and this misunderstanding uh, confusion kind of has impacted the industry's public perception? So, I mean, misinformation is abundant these days. It doesn't matter if it's to do with this industry or a, a number of, uh, of, of other items out there. It just seems to be given the era of social media, misinformation is so easy to, for one, to spread and two, to subscribe to. Uh, a click of the mouse or a Google search and you'll have... Uh, 50 different results with 50 different opinions. Unfortunately, the public tends to easily subscribe to the flash of a lot of this misinformation. Quite often, the truth isn't flashy and people don't subscribe to it. Um, and the environmental groups have really learned that. They're, they're great marketers. I have to give them credit for their marketing abilities and their use of social media. Um, they have run circles around the industry. The, the general public opens up the Vancouver Sun and on the back page of it, there's a picture of a, of a recently cut, clear cut block. And, you know, that's what they see. That's the image they see of the forest industry. Um, you know, we watch the, the commercials on TV of an old growth tree being fell and hit, hitting the ground. That's the, the imagery that people are seeing of the industry. Um, I think public opinion would be very different if they actually saw that you know, a hundred years later, there's a forest there again. Is it, is it the, the same forest as the old growth forest that, that was there? No, but you give it another 150 years, it's going to be mirroring that. So humans have a very short timeline on the earth and we tend to think that everything needs to be done quicker and it's only gotten worse with social media. But um, we can no longer sit back with our heads in the sand, hoping that the environmentalists are going to go after other industries like big oil and mining. We're in the crosshairs. And what we really need to do is educate, educate, educate. I can't say it enough that we need to get into the school systems. We need to teach folks about how renewable and the carbon sequestering power our industry can actually have. It is poised to be such a great green industry if we can actually package it properly but we don't industry sucks at packaging the image of forestry it should be the industry that everybody is signing up to want to be in because it's green it sequesters carbon and it's renewable and we just don't sell that side of the industry well enough uh so what does industry have to do we've got to spend more of our profits on ads and marketing, making the public realize the potential of this industry. Because if we don't, 
our future is, is not looking good. We need to invest in our future. And part of that is investing in our capital, but actually a huge part of it is the industry as a whole re-imaging itself to show how, how it is actually a sustainable industry and, and has many good qualities as far as carbon goes. Um, honestly, our biggest battle that's facing us now is the battle of sustainability. It's here. The public wants it and they need us to show them how we are sustainable. One in five customers now are making purchases based on the sustainability and the business practices in regards to sustainability of suppliers. And that is only going to increase. So honestly, if, if I was to say, you know, what's the silver lining thing that they need to be focusing on? It's, it's that image of the industry. Like we've lost so much ground in the last year and it's ground we didn't have to lose. So many of us get lost out in the woods or in the sawmill and we don't look at public image and, and it's public image is the new battle for this, for this century is showing, I mean, a company's uh, environmental social governance practices are just as important as the quality of that two by four that's coming off the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I've heard a lot of talk about how we need to get our story out and raise more awareness in the public, but there hasn't been too much in terms of, uh, I guess, putting the money where your mouth is. So definitely need to move forward with that. Um, And hopefully that will help the industry combat all the other challenges that we're facing. Um, So on the other side of the country, in Nova Scotia, uh, sawmills and loggers have faced fiber supply problems because of the closure of Northern Pulp in January 2020. So what do you think needs to be done in order to address this issue and ensure that the industry um, on the East Coast has a market for low-grade fiber? Yeah, I mean, a forced industry without a market for low-grade fiber really struggles. your wastage and everything increases so significantly. Uh, so when I look back at what's going on out in Nova Scotia, I mean, honestly, the government of Nova Scotia really needs to help work with industry to come up with a proper plan. And I mean, the stumbling block out there is it's wastewater treatment. And at the end of the day, it's the government of Nova Scotia that has to approve a wastewater treatment plan. Uh, Northern Pulp has put in uh, at least one proposal, which has been not denied. I believe they're, they're currently uh, have a second proposal in. If the government is truly committed to having Northern Pulp turn operations back on, they need to be working with Northern Pulp. Northern Pulp keeps putting a plan in and, and it gets rejected. The government needs to tell them what they need to, to pass um, and, and give them the plan, essentially say, you know, this is the plan. It may cost $100 million more, but at least gives Northern Pulp a footing to be able to go, this is what we actually need to do, and then find the dollars and cents to do it. I mean, government of Nova Scotia and the taxpayers actually have some of the largest exposure of risk if Northern Pulp's venture fails, uh, if if they go into full-on bankruptcy, because the taxpayers of Nova Scotia are a creditor uh, to the tune of $85 million to Northern Pulp. Uh, they lent Northern Pulp some funds uh, back in the early 2010s to buy some uh, timberlands, and they're still owed $85 million at this point. So um, it's a weird conundrum that Northern Pulp is now filing action against the government of Nova Scotia for lost profits, and yet the government of Nova Scotia is a creditor to Northern Pulp. 
So we get into this weird thing that honestly, both parties need to try to work together. And, and I mean, for the listeners, you'll kind of hear that throughout my, my comments say there's an underlying theme of corroboration and collaboration with all the interested parties. Like the industry has to collaborate to continue to, to thrive. I mean, Northern Pulp has a plan to invest $350 million in Nova Scotia, but that wastewater plan needs to be resolved before that can happen. $350 million investment in Nova Scotia is going to be a major investment and Nova Scotia and the taxpayers in Nova Scotia could really benefit from that investment. But there again, we need to get government and industry talking and both understanding what one another needs to be able to be successful. Government needs to, I mean, at the end of the day, be reelected and uh, push policy. Industry needs to be profitable and to be able to create jobs, which helps on the government side. So they both have the same interests. It's just a matter of sitting down and figuring out how to chisel through this and, and make it work. And I don't think that's what's happening at this, this time. Yeah, I think that uh, theme of collaboration that you mentioned is definitely going to be critical moving forward, um, just really across Canada. The industry and government needs to work together closely to address all of these issues. So um, do you think that the full effect of Northern Pulp's closure has been felt yet in the forest industry? I don't think it has. Um, <clears throat> I mean, its full effect is going to take years to be felt. And when I say years, it's going to be years of litigation and years of Nova Scotia taxpayer dollars um, being spent on that litigation and at coming up with a solution as far as uh, compensating Northern Pulp for what's been lost, uh, cleaning up the former uh, wastewater treatment lagoons. Um, yeah, I, I think there's going to be a long-term feel on that. And then on the flip side is, what does that do for the image of the pulp industry in Eastern Canada? I mean, I think every environmental group out there could pull up Northern Pulp as a great example of how the industry can destroy a ecosystem. And that's not good either. So um, there again, it's making sure that the image shows that there's responsibility for, for some of the actions that were taken over the years. And I mean, we have to realize Northern Pulp was owned by multiple different entities over the course of its uh, existence since 19, the late 1960s. Um, so every party kind of seems to say, well, it wasn't me. But I think uh, the ripple effect across Nova Scotia hasn't been fully felt either uh, as far as the lost jobs that are connected with Northern Pulp. And we haven't felt any of the impact that if the $350 million reinvestment doesn't go ahead, what that's going to do to uh, local businesses, contractors, and the jobs that are going to be lost as a result of that. And then the final one is, is what does the industry do if there's a lack of uh, market for their low-grade fiber? I think we're going to actually see a reduction in harvest volumes because if you can't offload your low-grade fiber, uh, unless you go in and selectively harvest only your, your high-grade stuff, you get into a real, real situation of then, are you burning it? I mean, are you, are you just letting it rot on the ground? There's, there's countless things. Or does Nova Scotia look at, if they don't want to uh, reinvest or, or collaborate with Northern Pulp, do they look at some sort of different option for their low-grade fiber? And I mean, that honestly, I'm not aware of a study at this point from Nova Scotia that's looking into that, but I mean, that 
should be a real focus on government is if Northern Pulp doesn't start up again, what are we going to do with our low grade fiber? Somebody has to come up with a solution. And I don't know if government really should be relying on industry to, to do that in this case. Right. Yeah, I definitely think uh, we're going to have to see some something happen, some sort of solution be proposed in the future, uh, especially if Northern Pulp's reinvestment doesn't happen. Um, obviously, we've now talked about a lot of different challenges facing the forest industry. It's a bit depressing, um, but what are some of the opportunities for the sector in the future? We're looking at mass timber, uh, biomass, bioeconomy, things like that. Oh, for sure. You know, we talked about BC, it was, it was pretty uh, dismal. I would have loved to say when we jumped over to the eastern side of Canada that we had great news. But um, I mean, I think it's just the trend of the industry. We're going through a, we're going through a different phase in the industry. And we have to come out the other side. You know, I, I would love to be able to sit here five years from now and say that we've uh, dealt with a lot of the challenges that we're facing. So one thing that I think in generally industry really needs to focus on is maximizing the use of fiber. Our fiber resource is is being reduced, be it through policy, be it through natural disaster, be it through harvest. So the key going forward for the industry is going to be maximizing that use of the fiber. So reducing our waste to as little as possible and then really capitalizing on a lot of that low value fiber that currently is underutilized. On top of that, I think areas such as mass timber and the different value added lines that are out there um, are really going to add to the industry. And it's, you know, it's stuff that traditionally you would have never thought came from a tree. It could be insulation for a house. It could be biochar. Uh, I've seen uh, recently some medical, um, medicines taken from different oils that are produced in, in wood tannins. Um, there's a lot of different, really unique products out there that are based on, on fiber. But the problem almost every producer of these products says is they have a lack of access to fiber. So it's looking at our traditional usage of our fiber and figuring out where do those max value products insert into the model? And maybe it means, means there's less fiber that ends up at the pulp mill. But that's okay if the industry as a whole is collaborating and making sure that there is fiber available for the unique innovations. I mean, that helps further the image of the industry that, oh, look at, you know, we're making medicine or, or, or vitamin supplements from fiber products. Uh, we're insulating our homes with fiber products that would have been glass before and really showing the sustainability side of it and that we're maximizing every stick harvested. Uh, you go to Europe and it's absolutely incredible the way they clean up a block after they've harvested. There's piles of branches that are bailed up, put onto a flatbed taken somewhere for, for bioenergy or somebody goes through and cuts out all the branches for furniture making. So I think really showing the public that we're maximizing the, the fiber that, that is harvested is going to be key. And that helps with our sustainability um, side of things as well. The other big one I think is carbon sequestration. So the amount of carbon that is sequestered from growing the fiber before it's even harvested, and then the actual harvesting usage of the fiber 
for long-term sequestering. You put it into a building and that carbon is now sequestered for a hundred years. So we can actually sequester carbon for in, in BC. I'm going to use the BC growing cycle uh, on the coast, you know, 50 year harvest cycle. So we're sequestering carbon for 50 years of growth. And then we harvest it and we sequester it for another hundred years on top of that. I mean, we've got a generation and a half of carbon sequestered. So the trees that we plant today will be sequestering carbon to the end of my lifetime. And then they will be sequestering carbon to the end of my children's lifetime in a building somewhere. So I think the industry really could capitalize on that long-term sequestering model. And I think it's been explored to a limited degree. And there's a lot of talk about the carbon markets and, and all of this, but I think it's a massive opportunity, both for the environment, but also for the industry and the public image of the industry. So, I mean, if, if we could have the likes of, uh, you know, major licensees like the Interfors and the Canfors of the world, um, I mean, I, I've seen some, some of them put reports together, like, you know, this is the amount of carbon we sequestered last year through the growth of our trees. But we don't push that to the public well, well enough. Like if, if we could say top 10 licensees in all of Canada sequestered X million tons of carbon last year through growing trees, that, that's got a huge impact as far as what it is. And, and then, I mean, we could actually be projecting based on a hundred year cycle in a home. We're not going to release that carbon now until 2160 or whatever, right? Like. It, it could actually be a really interesting thing. And I think um, as our fiber becomes less available and we become more of a, a process where we're actually farming the fiber, such as countries like New Zealand do already, um, carbon sequestering is going to become easy because you can measure the yield, you can measure the volume, the growth on, on a block and do the math as far as sequestration goes. So, um, and I think that's going to be key to showing the sustainability of the industry. So really it's... Yeah, absolutely. I think those are some good points and carbon sequestration is definitely an exciting opportunity for the industry and something for everyone to look forward to, I guess. So looking ahead to 2022, um, given all of that that we've just discussed and in terms of lumber market with COVID and everything, do you think we're going to continue to see high prices and demand or do you think that will level off next year um, as more of the world's population gets vaccinated and fewer people are doing DIY projects and things like that? So, I mean, given where lumber prices sit today, economists are predicting continued increases. Mills have pulled back or curtailed production in some areas because of where lumber sits as of today. Stumpage systems in BC has caused uh, some slowdown in production, uh, things like that. So we have decreasing supply coming out of some areas, which should increase pricing because demand is, is still there. Um, labor shortages are gonna continue to plague producers into 2022, which again is gonna impact the supply side. Uh, in Western Canada, we're actually seeing a higher demand for new home builds, and that's going to increase the demand. Overall, I don't think we're going to see the levels we saw in April, May of 2021. Uh, however, somewhere around that 900 to 1,000 board feet is what I'm seeing a lot of analysts kind of predicting is that there's going to be 
increases, we're not likely going to see the the mad rush to 1600 or or beyond that we saw in uh, spring of 2021. The other thing that the other trend that we've we've seen though in lumber is the floor has changed in many cases. So the minimum price attainable for for lumber sales, many believe, has kind of risen to a point where uh, you know it's come up a hundred to hundred and fifty dollars a thousand board feet, and that's going to be the new norm. You know, seeing two fifty or three hundred may not actually be something that we see uh, ever again. In that our new norm may be closer to four hundred as far as a floor goes. I mean, that's good for producers. Uh, that puts most folks into profitability uh, space as far as production goes. So, so it'll be good. But uh, I don't think we're going to see those high highs of this year. So a bit more manageable next year, but still good for the uh, sawmills. So that's at least a good opportunity for them. So overall, what do you think sawmills and logging contractors need to be aware of the most in the next year in order to successfully overcome all these changes that are coming down the pipeline in terms of changing regulations and natural disasters and things like that? I think there's a couple things. Uh, One is focused on profitability, ensuring that that profitability is still there for the harvest and also for for production. And I think we'll see that as prices fluctuate, we may see temporary curtailments in certain areas where cost of production is higher. BC would be one market where we may see some curtailments, especially if if lumber doesn't get to 900 to 1,000. Um, We may see some temporary curtailments in certain uh, areas where fiber is expensive to get. The other thing is, is, is making informed business decisions. So using the, the data provided uh, to make the decisions and that's going to tie in with government policy, uh, making informed investment decisions uh, where government policy is more friendly. Collaboration to see the industry, industry thrive is going to be a key thing too. Sawmills and loggers, everybody's going to have to work together to see this through. In many regions of, of North America, it's still an us versus them approach to loggers and sawmillers. We have to get through that somehow, because if we don't, we are a weaker industry as a whole because of this. And a lot of opponents to the industry actually thrive on the fact that there is an us versus them factor, and they, they continue to drive a bigger wedge between sawmill owners and loggers. And until we can all realize that the greater good of the industry is good for all of us, we're going to struggle. And you know what? I, I don't know how to solve it. Uh, and I don't think anybody does because it's, it's age old. It's 100 years. I, you know, I think it's improving, but it's not improving at the, at the rate it has to to ensure that industry thrives. Public opinion uh, is the other big driving factor that folks in the industry need to be aware of. Um, as I mentioned earlier, environmental, social, and governance issues, they're the new trend that the public is looking at. And we need to be able to react to that and adopt those policies so that we can uh, continue on in the industry. The other one would be is focusing on being aware of government policy and what the potential impacts could be to your business trying to figure out a way to stay up to date on government policies because it seems like it's constantly changing right now and if you have an opinion on it making sure that you get that opinion or if you're invested if you're a stakeholder in 
different government policies that are going to impact you, letting your elected officials know how it's going to impact you, because that I think is a part of the struggle is the forest industry is relatively quiet until we get hit with something. We don't really have a lot to say in a lot of cases. So, you know, if you're that logger in Port McNeil, that's going to lose everything. If government policy comes in, that that's going to restrict what you can do. You need to be writing to your elected official and telling them, you know, your story, because those are the stories that actually cause change at the government level. I mean, those are the key ones. Uh, and then, I mean, I think sawmill owners and loggers just have to hold their breath, cross their fingers and, and hope Mother Nature is going to treat them well in 2022. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely going to be an interesting year uh, in terms of changing regulations and the impact of natural disasters. But I know the forest industry is a resilient one, so I'm sure everyone will you know, find a way to get through it. And hopefully we will see a lot more collaboration in the next year. Most definitely. So thank you for taking the time to speak with me today and sharing all of those insights. It was really interesting. Thank you, Ellen. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. And thanks everyone for listening. This podcast brought to you by MNP features Chris Duncan, our national leader of forestry and forest product services. MNP, wherever business takes you. <laughs>